0: Hi, this is Nate Wegiehout, producer of the WORT Local News. We know we're one of Madison's best podcasts, but let's make it official. Nominations for Madison Magazine's Best of Madison competition are open through the end of the month. Help nominate this show in the best podcast category. Just go to tinyurl.com slash votewart and cast your vote for the WORT Local News in the podcast category and you can nominate us every day through the end of the month. So vote early and vote often, maybe when you're listening to this show. Final voting will take place in June. Thanks in advance.
1: This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. As the Wisconsin Department of Safety and Professional Services is experiencing ongoing backlogs for issuing occupational licenses, Republican lawmakers on the state legislature's oversight committee are requesting an audit. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the state agency receives an average of 13,000 applications per month and says this backlog is due to small staffing and low funding. Democratic lawmakers believe that this requested audit will strain the current capacities of the department as it faces continuing delays.
2: The Lac de Flambeau tribal nation in northern Wisconsin is protesting a land dispute by barricading a road running through tribal land. The tribe charges the roads were built illegally, and that Lacta flambeau has not been compensated for the easement, reports the Green Bay Press-Gazette. But some non-tribal homeowners who live on the roads say they are now trapped, and barricades are preventing them from buying food, medication, and other essentials. Governor Tony Evers visited the reservation last weekend to meet with tribal officials and believes the two parties will reach an amicable solution.
1: Evers released details today for one part of his upcoming proposed state budget. The governor's plan, to devote 20% of the state's sales tax revenue to help fund municipal governments. The proposal, which he first unveiled in his State of the State speech last month, will send over half a billion dollars more to local communities to invest in things like local health and human services, EMS, fire, and law enforcement. The plan would be the largest increase in shared revenue for Wisconsin's local governments in decades. The budget will also include an option for local municipalities to enact their own sales tax of 0.5%. That local sales tax would have to be approved by voters in a referendum.
2: Wisconsin is seeking a spike in reported cases of toxic shock syndrome. There have been five known cases of TSS since July, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services reports. It's the first time in 12 years that multiple cases have been reported in the same year. Four cases were associated with super absorbency tampon use in teenage girls. TSS is a rare complication of bacterial infection. Symptoms include a high sudden fever, vomiting, and a sunburn-like rash. It can cause low blood pressure, shock, multi-organ failure, and death. It's often associated with prolonged use of the same tampon, though tampons alone do not cause the condition. The state health department reminds everyone who uses tampons to use the lowest absorbency option, change their tampon every four to six hours, and avoid using them overnight.
1: And in more health news, local public health officials are warning of a jump in drug overdoses in Dane County. Public Health Madison Dane County issues spike alerts when there are unexpected increases in overdoses. Today it warns that there have been at least 10 drug overdoses throughout the county over the past 36 hours. At least one person has died as a result. The local health department warns that these overdoses are connected to fentanyl-laced cocaine and methamphetamine. Both Narcan and fentanyl testing strips are available for free at any of its local offices. And now on to today's top stories.
2: Last year, the City of Madison approved their 2023 budget to include nearly $100,000 to be used to increase alder salaries. But only one week later, the City Council voted against raising alder pay, meaning that money now sits dormant within the city budget. Tonight, the Council will hear four different proposals to find new ways to use that money. WRT producer Nate Buggehout has more.
0: The Common Council will meet for their regular meeting tonight where they'll go over their usual alcohol license changes, debate how many chickens you can keep in your yard, and they'll decide how to use money originally set aside to raise all their pay. In last year's budget, the council put aside around $91,000 to increase alder pay. While the money was approved and set aside, the resolution to actually increase alder pay was voted down just one week later. Tonight, there are four proposals on the table looking for new ways to utilize that money. All four resolutions would amend the 2023 operating budget to transfer the money that was approved for alder raises into other programs across the city. But different alders are envisioning different uses for the money, which range from investigating discrimination complaints, paying interns, funding violence prevention efforts, or expanding Madison's alternative police response. The first proposal, introduced by District 7 Alder Nasrawahili, would move around $74,000 to the Department of Civil Rights to hire a new Equal Opportunities Investigator. Equal Opportunities investigators investigate complaints of housing discrimination, discrimination by police, and other violations of equal opportunity laws. The position was originally included in the department's budget request last year. According to their 2023 budget request, the added position would help address the increased workload taken by the department after the city of Madison absorbed the town of Madison. At a finance committee meeting back in January, Byron Bishop, the city's Equal Opportunities Division Manager, said that the majority of those living in the town of Madison are renters, meaning that they need their help as much as anyone else living in Madison.
1: And and as I mentioned, we've already been requested by uh, different members of the public for our services, but because they were not within the geographic boundaries of the city of Madison, we could not provide those services to them. Uh, And so now we uh, we can and we're obligated to provide those services and it's very, very helpful to have these additional resources.
0: Another proposal, also introduced by Alder Wahili, would keep the money within the Common Council and use $15,000 for intern stipends. Currently, alders don't have any interns. All of the help they receive in creating legislation comes from either city departments or from one of the four council staff members. Those council staff members are split between the entire council. Currently, alders are given two hundred and fifty dollars for interns and other expenses. This proposal would give each alder seven hundred and fifty dollars, specifically as a stipend to pay interns. At a finance committee in January, Alder Wahili said that two hundred and fifty dollars is not enough to attract students.
3: That will not help attract students in terms of collaborating with students from various institutions. And this will be an entry for those students to learn uh, public service and policy. So that will be an attraction for the students to engage in the city government.
0: The third proposal was introduced by Alders Yannette Figueroa-Cole of District 10 and Sabrina Madison of District 17 and would move around $91,000 to the City County Health Department for Violence Prevention Services. Violence Prevention Services views violence through the lens of mental health and includes programs Programs like CARES and services for unhoused folks in Madison. older Figueroa Cole says that the money will be used by the Strong Neighborhoods Committee to assess local organizations and addressing the root causes of violence.
4: Who are already working on the neighborhoods trying to make them stronger and healthier. These funds, what, um, what they do is they supplement the work of community organizations that are providing services directly related to violence prevention.
0: Figueroa Cole adds that she's requesting the money to show that she is actively working to address public safety in Madison.
4: It's just for council to show that we are committed to addressing violence prevention and that it's not just a campaign promise or it's not just something that we just say when we are trying to make a point. No, that we're actually backing up all those words with actual money.
0: The final proposal, introduced by older Tag Evers of District 13, would move $82,000 to help expand the city's CARES program. CARES began in 2021 and sends a qualified paramedic and crisis worker to nonviolent behavioral health emergencies instead of police. According to their 2022 annual report, CARES responded to 57% of the estimated number of mental health calls in their first year of service. With the expanded funding, Alder Evers says that the program would be able to hire the staff to create a third CARES team as early as April. This, he says, could help the program respond to some of the remaining 43 percent of mental health calls.
4: It seems to me that one thing we all agree on, Council, pretty sure there's a near unanimous support for the idea that CARES has been an unqualified good for our community. And I thought that Perhaps we could all come together and say, with this remaining money, why don't we use it to continue the good work that we started with carriage and see it expand even more.
0: The council will have to choose which proposal to go with carefully, as they only have around $91,000 to distribute. Three of the four proposals will receive a final vote tonight, though those three will go without the recommendation for adoption by the city's finance committee. The fourth proposal, to move money to the CARES program, will be introduced tonight. After being introduced, the CARES proposal will head to the Finance Committee on Monday. Tonight's council meeting begins at 6.30. You can attend either virtually through Madison City Channel or in person on the second floor of the city-county building. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wegehowt.
1: The city of Madison wants to add another tax incremental district, or a TID, to the south side of Madison, which would give them $115 million in financial support for economic development. But what is a TID, and what does this mean for the city? WORT reporter Abigail Levins dives into an economic development model you should know more about.
5: A $115 million plan to combat displacement, increase homeownership, and maximize economic opportunities for South Madison could be on the horizon. It's through an economic development tool called Tax Incremental Financing, or TIF. Under TIF, the city draws boundaries on a map. That's called a Tax Incremental District, or TID, and this district is given money by the city to start development or infrastructure projects that would not be otherwise possible. The tax revenue from that completed development pays back the money to the city, usually over the course of several decades. The proposed TIF district is bounded by Fish Hatchery Road, Wingra Creek, John Nolan Drive, and the Beltline. It would fund $50 million in public works projects, $22 million toward affordable housing, $15 million for community revitalization projects, and nearly $20 million for economic and community development, including for small business. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway says investing in South Madison is particularly important.
2: In, you know, in particular, South Madison is a historically black community and has experienced disinvestment and underinvestment over the years. And so I think it's important for our whole community that we are making thoughtful um, and community-engaged investments.
5: It's part of a long-term plan to invest more in South Madison, which is home to the city's most diverse population. Last year around this time, the city passed the South Madison Plan, which gives a roadmap for the future of the South Madison area. Guiding principles include increased economic growth, housing, home ownership, and promoting equity and community development. South Madison alder Sherry Carter, who represents District 13, says this specific area has been a city focus since the South Madison plan last year.
6: Well, I
4: think that all the work we've done leading up to this moment has paved the path for the TIF district.
5: Alder Carter says there are several projects the city is working on in that area right now. These include the Village on Park Street renovations, the Black Business Hub, Center Hispano's new building, and the Center for Black Excellence. If approved, this would be the 4th TIF district on Madison's South Side. Matthew Mikolojewski, Economic Development Director for the city, says that the South Madison district is unique. The city realized that they will not have the funds right away to start major projects, so they are borrowing money from two healthy TIDs in Madison, Districts 36 and 37, to get started. These districts would have enough revenue to pay off their debts and some extra to lend to this new TID, which would be TID 51. TID 51 is slated to come before various committees this spring. If approved, Mikolojewski says they would start construction right away. He says this is a 27-year TID, which means the city can use TID funds for 22 years, as they have to stop using funds five years before expiration. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway adds that a big focus of the plan is on preventing displacement. They heard from the community that this is a big problem in that area, so they want to help.
2: But in this TID in particular, one of the top priorities of the community was that we focus on uh, preventing people from being
5: displaced from the community. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins.
1: We continue our coverage of the primary election for District 14 Alder with Isidore Knox, Jr., who spoke with WORT producer Nate Wegehout about why he is running to represent Madison's south side.
0: The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 14 on the south side of Madison, containing parts of Fish Hatchery Road and Park Street. One of the three candidates running in that district is Isidore Knox Jr., who joins me now by phone. Isidore, thank you so much for talking with me.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: So just to start here, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Who are you?
4: I'm Isidore Knox, Jr. I've lived on the south side of Madison for over 30 years. My wife, Cheryl, and I love our supportive community, and we've raised our five children who've all graduated from college and are successfully pursuing their professional careers. I've lived in South Madison for over 30 years in the neighborhood that I live in. I've uh, invested quite a bit in terms of being on various city committees, boards, and commissions. I currently serve on the Police Citizens Oversight Board and the Destination District Task Force in addition to the South Metropolitan Planning Council. That's a council that helps support neighborhood associations and residents. And I'm also um, the director of the Southside Raiders football and cheerleading program. So been involved in a lot of community issues over the years. I was an alder back in 05 through 07 for the 13th district, which is adjacent to this district. Some of those neighborhoods were a part of 13th district at the time, but now I have some additional neighborhoods. So I'm, Very well, familiar, invested in South Madison, and I've worked in, I'm retired. I retired in 2018, worked in state and county government for a combined 36 years. So I feel like I have the experience, the uh, community investment, and the leadership to um, lead the district and represent the voices of the residents in this district. And now, why
0: are you running for Alder of District 14?
4: That's a good question. Um, uh, like I said, I, I retired in 2018. I, I wasn't planning to run for Alder, but as you know, they recently had redistricting. Uh, Sherry Carter, who's our current Alder, has been on Alder for, I think, going on four terms. And Arbor Hills, where she lives, was moved to the 10th district. And so that left the 14th district Without an older person, and um, I just felt like I'm the right person to continue some of the successes that we've had. And having been familiar with these neighborhoods, I think I'm the right choice to be the older.
0: And now, what are some of the most pressing issues facing the city of Madison that you would want to address if elected as older?
4: Well, there are a variety of issues, and I would say our district shares. Um, most of those districts, I mean, most of those issues that the city as a whole is facing, what I plan to prioritize is make sure that we have responses, responsive city services. As you know, we took parts of the town of Madison that's in the city of Madison now, and those new residents certainly are expecting responsive city services. We have public public safety issues. That's another one of my priorities. Uh, accessible transportation services is another issue that we need to address promoting uh, neighborhood enhancement. Um, we have a lot of new economic development initiatives here and in, on the South side, and we need employment opportunities and also promoting, um, services for seniors and youth. But if I was going to say the primary issue in my district is um, making sure that we can increase. We have probably one of the lowest home ownership districts in the city and probably one of the highest subsidized housing in districts in the city. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a good combination, and so we really have to work hard to make sure that we increase home ownership and at the same time make sure that we're addressing the um, citywide vacancy rate. As far as the city as a whole, I think the major issue is going to be the debt service. We really are going to have a budget issue, especially coming out of COVID-19, and we're going to have to make smart choices to make sure that essential services are being provided and but that we hold the line so that future future citizens don't have to take on a huge debt service
0: now another issue that you mentioned there before was uh, transit. Now, bus rapid transit set to come into effect starting next year and network redesign set to start later this summer. How, how do you feel about that, the network redesign and the bus rapid transit?
4: I really, I mean, the city's obviously moving forward with the bus rapid transit. And, you know, I'm genuinely supportive of that. I do, however, have a lot of concerns about the cost. The federal government's kicking quite a bit in for the first phase, which will be, I think, the uh, east-west part of the portion. But as we know, the federal government is at uh, debt ceiling right now. <laughs> they got a big problem, so I don't know that we know for sure the uh, federal resources are going to be there for the second phase when it gets to the south side, the, um, that portion of it. So I'm really concerned where those revenues are going to come from. Um, Basically, I feel like the priority should be on making sure that we have an accessible bus system that's efficient. And uh, I think the good thing is we just, I think we just purchased something like 75 electric buses, which I think is great in terms of trying to reduce the, um, you know, the carbon footprint. That I'm very concerned about the overall cost of, of what this rapid transit will ultimately become. But we're going down that road now. We're going to have to really look at possibilities of where this additional revenue sources are going to come from. But the most important thing for the citizens is that it's accessible, that we have, that they can get to that rapid transit line. And the second thing is the cost to the bus riders. And there's a couple of discussions out there about free bus, you know, uh, free transit. And so we've got to look at all of those options and see if we can make sure that the service works for the citizens. So, um, you know, I'm a little concerned, again, about the financing, but I guess we'll be moving forward and trying to resolve some of those issues.
0: Your district there, District 14, is seeing two pretty significant investments to support Black Madisonians with the uh, Black Business Hub and the Center for Black Excellence. What conversations have you had with the leaders and organizers of those groups?
4: Well, the the good thing about those two developments is they've allowed the community to engage and have discussions about how they feel about that. I'm really excited about the... Um, Black Business Hub because I know there are a lot of Black and other uh, persons of color who need small businesses who need that support. So having that hub there where they'll have a location, hopefully they'll get some assistance in marketing their products, and that can be a real stimulus to the uh, local Southside community. The Center for Black Excellence is also a great opportunity. We've had a need for quite a while to have space to hold events, and that certainly will provide a a big need to have some space for performances. Uh, We get an opportunity to share Black history with people. And so, again, I think that will be something that the community can be proud of. And I'm hoping that both of these entities will also stimulate employment because one of the more important issues we need is how do we as a city support bringing up people's wages and so that they can have the quality of life that they're looking for and sharing that American dream, maybe become homeowners. So those two things are good stimulus. I still feel like there's a lot of infield development that has to happen off of Fish Hatchery and Park Street to um, stimulate the economy on the south side. So I'm feeling really good that finally the eyes and focus is in South Madison, and it's about time.
0: So just wrapping things up here, do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share with us here?
4: Yeah, I guess what I would like to say is, you know, the city is growing. We have to stay ahead of that growth so that citizens can get the services that they need. And I believe that I have the community leadership, the experience, the governmental experience, and I've invested in this community to help uh, be a voice for the residents of South Madison and lead us to um, more enhanced uh, neighborhood services.
0: I've been talking with Isidore Knox, Jr., one of the three candidates running in the spring primary election for District 14 Alder. That primary election takes place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Uh, Isidore, thank you so much for talking with me
4: today. Thank you for having me.
2: The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knudsen, thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student publications, to learn the latest news from campus. This week on Cardinal Call, producer Madeline Alfonso spoke with campus science writer Julia Weisling about a student-run initiative to beautify Bascom Hill.
6: Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso. I'm joined today by science editor Julia Wiesing to discuss a new campus initiative to beautify Bascom Hill. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Can you explain what your story was about and why you wanted to write about
7: it?
8: Yeah, so I was at Memorial Union a couple nights ago and I saw a poster and it was about a project called Beautify Bascom. And the aim was basically to turn bascom from just a lawn to something that could support pollinators and mammals and like biodiversity in Wisconsin and I was lucky enough to be able to meet with the creators, uh, Aaron Urbaniak and Christian Fisher, as well as their mentor, uh, Dr. Kathleen Woodward.
6: What did the two students who founded this say was their inspiration?
8: So it was actually started out as a class project for uh, conservation biology, which is a botany course. And they were in Burge Hall on top of Bascom, and they were looking around trying to find something to fix, something achievable for this final project. And Aaron suggested turning Bascom into a prairie, into something that supported more life than just a flat lawn. And that's kind of the genesis of the project.
6: How would something like Beautify Bascom benefit campus from a habitat and vegetation standpoint?
8: Yeah, so one of our main concerns with climate change and urbanization and also that's happening in the world right now is biodiversity, which is basically how many types and how many animals are there. This applies to animals, mammals, pollinators, basically everything. Generally, the more biodiversity there is, the stronger an ecosystem is. Um so in this case Madison has become really urban and we can't support a lot of these historically very important pollinators and animals. A classical example is the rusty Patch bumblebee which is super common in Dane County and in the Arboretum, but you're not going to see them in Madison because you don't have this you don't have a habitat for them. So Beautified Baskum is basically bringing in these super critical habitats to the center of Madison to support biodiversity.
6: Why is it important to prioritize pollinator habitats and native plants in a project like this? Kind of what you were just talking about, but expand a little bit more.
8: Yeah, so the project's leads actually had two different perspectives on this. One was the biodiversity angle where we're supporting and protecting native wildlife and endangered wildlife. So things like the rusty Fetch bumblebee, monarch butterflies, things like that. But another important part of the project that they mentioned to me was actually historical preservation so what they want to do is bring back pre-colonization prairies and bring back a part of Wisconsin's ecological history that's been really threatened by development.
6: What were some of the benefits besides biodiversity and
8: conservation? So one of the benefits that I found most surprising looking into was Uh, health and wellness, Uh, looking at flowers and spending time in nature has been clinically proven to improve your reaction to stress, make you overall happier and more focused and as college students we kind of need a lot of that so having this basically the centerpiece of Madison be a place where students can come and relax and de-stress and be surrounded by nature is super important but there's also ecological and economical benefits. For example, these prairies reduce runoff, which makes water, less water waste, makes water bills cheaper. But it also helps to reduce the amount of agricultural chemicals that are running off into Lake Mendota every year.
6: You also touched on this, um, but can you expand more on how the prairies on Bascom Hill would serve as a tribute to Wisconsin's heritage? Mm -hmm. So
8: Wisconsin looked a lot different uh, pre-colonization. Um, There's often this myth of a uh, untouched wilderness before white people got here, but that's not really the case. Um, Native Americans, especially in our region, were caretakers of the land and they had abundance of knowledge of how to take care of it, how to maintain it, and as Madison is growing, we're destroying a lot of these pre-colonization prairies that might be hundreds of years old. Additionally, forest growth, while well, can be really cool, also solely destroys Wisconsin's prairies, which are vital ecosystems, as well as vital cultural landmarks for the state.
6: Is there anything you learned while reporting this that surprised you or that you didn't know before?
8: I, I was surprised how much power a student initiative could do, because I was surprised that something like a simple class project could evolve to the point where they're, they have a petition, they have social media campaign, but they're also in talks with the departments. Like They're getting this off the ground, and it sounds like people are listening to them, which is really cool to see. Anything else you think listeners should know about this topic? I want to repeat something that Erin told me during the interview. And she said that everyone can do something to improve biodiversity. Even if you live, like me, in a small downtown apartment, you can do something today to help biodiversity. This might be planting wildflowers, putting, if you have a tiny porch like I do, putting some flowers out there, or generally supporting causes that help with conservation and biodiversity. Anyone can do it. You don't have to make a massive project to beautify Bascom, but you can do something yourself to help out the world just a little bit. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Julia. Thank you for having me.
6: In other campus news, the UW System's free speech survey results are in. Last semester, students across all UW System schools were invited to participate in a survey regarding the state of civil dialogue on their campuses. The survey found that a significant majority of students deemed their academic environment conducive to exploring and expressing new viewpoints. Majority of students across the political spectrum felt comfortable expressing their opinions and exploring new ones. But the proportion of conservative students who reported feeling this way was smaller. The survey also indicated that liberal students are generally more comfortable expressing their opinions on controversial issues than their conservative counterparts. Madison begins the search for a new vice provost. The university has yet to fill the position of vice provost for data academic planning and institutional research following the retirement of Jocelyn Milner at the end of the last academic year. Last month, the university created a search and screen committee to help evaluate each candidate to fill the role. basketball player, Julie Pospisilova, reaches a thousand point milestone. During a game earlier in the season, the senior from the Czech Republic became the 28th Badger in program history to reach a thousand career points, and the first not born in the United States. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
1: Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explains why starvation is one of the hardest situations to cure in all of animal rehabilitation.
7: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about avian emaciation. Now, emaciation is something that you probably haven't heard very often in normal conversation. It's something that comes up in rehabilitation all the time, though. And as a rehabilitator, emaciation is one of the hardest things to combat when we see a patient coming in, whether it's a bird, a mammal, a reptile, any species, emaciation is when an animal is starving and i'm not meaning prolonged starvation because when you're talking about starvation you can be talking about it in different grades meaning that you could have starvation for a day you could have starvation for a couple of days a couple of weeks it's really defined as a long continued deprival of food and its morbid effects. So you could have body weight loss, you could have muscle loss, you could have fat that is depleting from your stores, but When you're truly emaciated, that means that you are excessively lean. You are wasted away. You have been starving for a long period of time to the point where your body is really truly feeling those negative effects. Now this happens to a lot of different species. So I wanted to give an example. Um, We had actually the cutest little white-breasted nuthatch that was in our care for the last couple of months. And the bird came in with a kind of a, a dopey look, meaning it was really kind of tired and squinty and, you know, it was one of those those cases where we knew it had hit a window and there was um, probably some underlying head trauma that was involved for this bird. And when you think of a nuthatch, which is a little tree creeping woodpecker type of species, it's not actually a woodpecker, but it's a tree creeper. It's eating lots of different bugs and things. It's creeping up and down trees. Sometimes you'll see them at your bird feeders, probably eating suet and stuff. Well, when a bird is debilitated, and especially if they're injured, they're not really feeling well. And sometimes those birds are in great condition if they strike window, but sometimes they're in eh, not great condition. Maybe it's wintertime like right now and they are already having a hard time finding food or they are depleting those natural storage from their body to be able to survive during a winter. So this nuthatch, although he looked, you know, relatively decent in terms of condition, you know, over the first couple of days in treatment, you have to imagine that hitting a window, you have a pretty bad headache. Um, So for uh, multiple days, the bird was not really feeling itself, meaning that it wasn't eating. It would try to eat. There were great videos taken. We would leave a camera in the cage just to see what it would do on its own time without human interference. And you could see it, you know, grabbing mealworms and tapping it against the ground and doing its best to try to eat, but you can imagine maybe there's some eye trauma, maybe he's just having trouble being able to, you know, mush the mealworm enough to be able to eat it because it hurts to peck. You know, there's so many things you could think of, and I don't know which one was really causing the problem for this nuthatch, but he just started to kind of deteriorate. And when that happens, especially for a bird that has such a high metabolism because they're eating so frequently throughout the day, we had to intervene because we didn't want it to turn into emaciation. So, in that starvation process, we have to think about what type of species it is, what kind of products we can actually give that animal to help stabilize it in treatment. And so, this little nuthatch was provided with kind of like a slurry of food of simple proteins. And we do something called gavaging, which is tube feeding. Now, it's a very stressful process. I mean, a bird already doesn't like being handled by humans, nor does it like being in captivity, but sometimes tube feeding is kind of a last resort for us if that bird is getting close to emaciation, if it's starving. Now, this bird wasn't truly emaciated, and we do have some birds that come in a lot that are actually truly emaciated, meaning that, like, they've already been out in the environment for multiple weeks without food. This bird just needed a little temporary boost. So, luckily, more in the starvation kind of category, not really the truly emaciated category, but that's actually a good thing. And so we were able to tube feed this bird just a couple more days so that, you know, the pain meds could get into effect, it would start feeling better. And then you could really see the dramatic change in this bird just to be able to start to brighten up and be able to fend for itself. And it makes me think of how that bird would have done on its own in the wild if we hadn't intervened, right? So if some kind human hadn't gone and picked up that bird, it would have probably been on the ground, struggling to find food, probably having a difficult time in general over that course of, you know, a good week or so it very likely would have been predated on. And so instead of that happening, we were able to give it temporary care and provide it with all of its needs in addition to getting it through that period where it was starving to be able to avoid emaciation, avoid its death from predation, and it now has a second chance of life. And I think that's super cool. We just had a great video that went out about it. So if you get to see that on our Facebook page, you can definitely check us out at the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. But then we also look at it from you know a, another perspective. That That's a happy story. But we also see a lot of animals that are truly, truly emaciated. And we have had multiple hawks and owls and other animals that come in that are emaciated. And I think of raptors at this time of year, especially because they're having a harder time finding prey items to eat. And they're so much different than something like a songbird. And raptors in general aren't really the same in terms of their metabolic needs, their nutritional needs. You know, they can't really survive you know, without food for very long and a a bird in great healthy condition that is a raptor, you know, it could take up to six weeks for them to succumb to death from starvation. But usually they're getting their energy source from whole prey like mice or fish or, you know, small rodents like, you know, we've also got, you know, baby bunny season is great for red-tailed hawks, that's their prey items. Um, But typically anywhere between 80 to 90 percent protein and a little bit of fat. And so those energy sources are important for them to be able to get their nutritionally balanced diet and they need to be able to digest that. And what we see are problems when an animal is emaciated that they're not able to digest food yet. You know, they have used up all of their stores, all of their amino acids, their proteins, their fats, everything is broken down to the point where they don't have anything really to help them process the food that goes into their stomach. And so, if you're a well meaning citizen that picks up an emaciated animal and you think, oh, I should probably try to feed this animal, it seems really thin. You know, we've had a lot of members of the public give like raw chicken or ground hamburger or something. And while well intentioned, that can actually cause a ton of problems for that animal. Because if they just have that food sitting in their crop, for example, like hawks do. If it's sitting in the crop, it's just going to sit there and rot, and it can cause a bacterial infection and yeast growth and so many other problems and complications, that bird can ultimately become septic and die and become, you know, really, really sick if they don't die. So, you know, it's one of those things where we want to be able to, as rehabilitators, check their blood work when they get in to look and see what are their you know, glycemic indexes. Are they hyperglycemic? Are they hypoglycemic? You know, looking at their protein levels within their, their blood plasma, we'll be looking at things like their, their weights and what it should be, and then giving them those exact nutritional requirements that they need in a very slow, steady way before they get whole Prey items. Uh, because again, if you introduce it too soon, it can just cause so many complications, ultimately leading to potential death. So We have had a few raptors like that coming in with just the worst possible emaciation you could almost find, and it takes a long time for them to be rehabilitated. So it could be multiple weeks. So when you've got an animal and you find an animal, I think the moral of this is whether the condition looks like it's great or if it feels like it's not great, either way, you really don't want to put food in with that animal if you contain it. It can wait a few more hours, even another day if needed for a rehabilitator to be able to evaluate it properly. So, you know, we were happy with the nuthatch being able to be stabilized through a couple of days, and obviously the risk of starvation to emaciation and death was very low for that animal, at least as it started to get brighter. But when you see something like a raptor in full emaciation, you know, it could have been a worse situation if the person had fed it. So we appreciate everyone who doesn't feed those animals that they find, but also give us a call so that we can give you the best advice possible about what to do in the situation you're in. So if you ever find an emaciation animal, a bird, anything like that, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And I appreciate your time listening here on WORT to Wildlife Weekly. Thanks for listening.
1: It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
2: Psilocybin is a naturally occurring psychedelic compound found in nearly 200 species of fungi. People across the world have been using the magic mushrooms for medicinal, recreational, and religious purposes for centuries. Back in 1966, the U.S. had banned the production and transport of the compound, making any research into its medical benefits difficult. But there has been a renewed interest in its medicinal uses in recent years, and a recent collaboration with the UW and private treatment clinics have found that doses of psilocybin can help with opioid and meth addiction. On yesterday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with Chantel Thomas, a clinical psychologist and executive clinical director of Windrose Recovery, one of the
3: principal investigators of the new study.
9: Tell us a little bit first about Windrose Recovery. What do you do and and Mm. what kinds of people do you work with?
3: So Windrose Recovery is actually a collection of companies that work with folks who have substance use disorders. And so one of the programs that we have is called the Manor, which is a residential treatment facility um, that treats substance use disorders and trauma. And that's in West Bend area. We also have a detox in Brookfield, uh, an intensive outpatient program, and then we have a professionals program that is in Chicago for impaired professionals called Positive Sobriety Network, and then we do... Ketamine-assisted psychotherapy through a program called Inagrata, which is also in Brookfield.
9: And the patients or clients that mm-hmm. you work with, are these are people who have opioid or methamphetamine addiction, or is it a wider variety of...
3: Yeah, so it's a it's a wide variety of folks that we help in those settings. I would say the majority of folks we see in residential have alcohol use disorder. We certainly see some opioid use disorder, polysubstance problems where people are using multiple substances, benzodiazepine stimulant use disorder. What's interesting is is methamphetamine use disorder is, is traditionally known as a use disorder that is not often to present to treatment or traditional treatment settings. And, and oftentimes those folks end up not feeling comfortable coming into regular treatment environments. And so we actually don't see a great percentage of them presenting to treatment, which is really interesting. I think in certain sub communities, you might see more proliferation depending on the use patterns. But in many of the traditional residential treatment environments, they're, they're less likely to present to treatment
9: is that just general mistrust of you know hospitals and clinical yeah infrastructure?
3: I ser- I'm, I'm not referencing any particular study but my my experience because I also worked in residential treatment when I was um, in California I worked in residential treatment actually in the Malibu area and and some some features of severe uh, use also lead to a certain amount of paranoia or a mistrust of other individuals, and certainly systems and operational systems seem even more untrustworthy. Um, and people can get very, very isolated and more severe um, delineation of methamphetamine use disorder because they can even uh, move into psychosis.
9: So tell us about this study with UW and psilocybin. Mm-hmm. How did you start to look at psilocybin as a possible treatment method?
3: Yeah. Well, one thing I i am a stickler for um, the details. So I'm not one of the private investigators, okay. but the folks that I work with at University of Wisconsin-Madison, which also includes my husband, Dr. Chris Christopher Nicholas, they became curious about looking at psilocybin as an intervention for folks with the opiate use disorder because it's it's quite frankly a serious issue for our community, for our culture. Overdose rates have increased through COVID-19, and there are certainly existing opportunities for people to get help, but the need for more novel treatment interventions is definitely a necessity. There's also qualities specific to the psilocybin experience that that have good reasons to believe that they would have an impact on significantly shifting a person's psychology, their questions about life, meaning, purpose, why they're using a compound, kind of like those bigger shake-up existential issues that sometimes people encounter when they have the opportunity in the right set and setting to use these compounds. And then there's some um, clinical research that came out of the tobacco use disorder studies um, and also um, more recently published paper on alcohol use disorder and the impact of psilocybin with alcohol use disorder. So we there's good reason to believe or at least postulate that addiction and substance use cycles that are really severely entrenched, how can we disrupt that in a way that's meaningful and purposeful and help people shift out of that cycle? That's really why we're looking at these compounds.
9: And when we're talking about psilocybin treatment, what mm-hmm. kind of dosages are we talking about? Are we talking about the, t- the uh, levels that would trigger its psychoactive effect in their absolutely,
3: cell yeah so these are not sub threshold doses um, these not are not micro doses okay. absolutely not yeah we're looking at moderate doses and moderate high doses because we're definitely hoping that people have a subjective experience that really helps them re-examine everything in many ways and that's a difficult thing to predict what it will look like because it would be different from person to person
9: and and what kinds of results have you gotten so far with these trials
3: So, um, we haven't published any. So, the methamphetamine use disorder is currently in recruitment. So, that is a. So, people who might know a loved one who struggles with methamphetamine use disorder or people in their community that have been touched, we would love for people to reach out to the University of Wisconsin. There's the. me see if I can get it right. Transdisciplinary Center for Psychoactive Substances, which is at the University of Wisconsin, which is where most of these studies will be posted. Clinicaltrials.gov is another place where people can look. But we're actively recruiting for people with active methamphetamine use disorder for the psilocybin study. Now, the opiate use disorder study, we were able to run a couple of subjects. I can definitely say we were working with those folks who were already maintained on Suboxone. And so those were folks who had been on a um, opiate replacement therapy to stay stabilize them for a period of time. And what we're really trying to be curious about with that particular study was whether or not they could still have an impactful or a meaningful experience with the presence of psilocybin even while being on suboxone. Because suboxone has affinity for the opiate receptor sites and so does psilocybin has some action on the opiate receptor sites. And so we wanted to see, does this block the effect or does it not? There were some promising trends that indicate that it didn't um, and those results have not yet been published. So that's very preliminary. However, what we're hoping to do now with the recruitment for the opiate use disorder Disorder study is open it up to people who are actively using opiates, and whereas the other study was looking at people who had already been stabilized. So these are folks with heroin use disorder or any other type of opiate use disorder. Whether they're abusing pharmaceutical opiates, they can come in, they can get stabilized through the process of the study, and then be stabilized sufficiently then to have a psilocybin experience. And they'll be working with two trained therapists throughout that process. So there's actually quite a lot of, a, of therapeutic support that's available to someone. There's stipends available for. For both of these studies so this is really first-in-kind pretty novel groundbreaking um, study that we're really excited to offer to the community
9: and you're just getting started so we don't have a lot of results
3: yeah yet, no that? That, that's right so we just we were able to run two subjects with the other opiate use disorder study and again those those results are going to be published fairly soon but again they were certainly encouraging enough for us to continue and then to open the net a little bit wider for other folks to have access who are not just stabilized but also people who are actively in use
9: we've been speaking with Chantelle Thomas, Executive Clinical
1: Director of Windrose Recovery. Thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure talking with you.
1: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at six. Your headline writer this evening was Jessica Lindell. Your
2: reporter was Abigail Evans.
1: Special thanks to our feature contributors.
2: Super Dave Lawrence and engineered the show.
1: Nate Waggy Hut produced this newscast. And
2: Shelley Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your
1: host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with Anoestro Patio. Good night.